Welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going? Really, really well. Looking forward to this. We are back in the uh, the, the regular flow of dealing with some of these old comic books that lead to classic Marvel movies. And this week we're going to yes. go back all the way in Marvel history to take a look at the first appearance of the Black Panther. Um, we're then going to stop off for a little bit in the 70s to see what uh, Panther was up to around about that time and take in the arrival of Killmonger. We're going to finish up with a look at Black Panther Volume 3 from the late 1990s, which is a trip, I have to say. It, it is, and uh, this is going to be quite a lot to go through, so let's jump in and talk a little bit of comic book news, and there, our feature story is Tom King and Peter Gross team up with Boom Studios for Animal Pound. So it's Batman writer Tom King and American Jesus co-creator Peter Gross unite in Boom Studios' new series called Animal Pound, which is based on George Orwell's novel Animal Farm. This new series will give readers a modern take on the classic story. There is a quote in here from Boom Studios executive editor Eric Harburn, who said about the upcoming series, Animal Pound isn't just a comic book event. It is a literary event from four of our medium's boldest storytellers. I'm actually a big fan of, of uh, Animal Farm, and the, there's a cover for the first issue, which is going to go on sale right before Christmas, December 20th, 2023. And so I think this is something I'm going to be looking out for. Dan, any thoughts on on uh, on this upcoming title? Yeah, this book scares the hell out of me. Tom Tom King can he yes. he can be a little weird sometimes. And okay. Animal Farm and George Orwell are like on my on my Mount Rushmore yeah. of favorite like all time uh, literary creators. So the ongoing right now Animal Castle that is is coming out i actually really like a lot so i'm not against adaptations but we will see how it goes um sure. could be really spectacular so i will be there for it i'll definitely be reading it but i'll be terrified as i'm reading it right up until <laughs> i know how it ends or or how gotcha, it goes gotcha all right marvel unlimited this week there does not appear to be any books being released on marvel unlimited this week there's books for last week. There's books for next week. There's just an empty space for this week. But I did want to call out two books that are new number ones that are coming to a comic book store near you. Miss Marvel, the new mutant number one comes out this week, as well as a Moon Knight annual one, Contest of Chaos. Both are going to be in comic book stores this week. The uh, Both of these look really interesting and uh, might be worth checking out if you're if you're heading to your comic book store this week. Absolutely, absolutely. Dan, a recommendation for this week? 
Well, since we are talking Black Panther, and just in case somebody wants to sort of get ready for next week's discussion, one of the books that I'm going to be reviewing again before we talk about Black Panther the movie next week is Why Wakanda Matters. Subtitled, What Black Panther Reveals About Psychology, Identity, and Communication. It's by Dr. Sheena C. Howard. And it is a fantastic look at sort of the creation of the Black Panther movie and Ryan Coogler and his team and sort of really interesting sort of insight into how the movie was made in terms of costuming and sets and the script. Um, the fact that they had really sort of almost like this, this idea of black excellence throughout the entire movie where it was an entire movie where you had folks in positions of, of creative control and the like who were, were black folks making this movie that became very important to the black community. So, really, really a great book, though. Um, as somebody who's done a lot of comic history stuff, uh, this was one of my favorite books of the year, a couple of years ago when it came out. We will have a link to it in the show notes. There's looks like it's pretty much anywhere you would get 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 your books from, so definitely yep. wor sounds like it's worth checking out. All right, let's dive in and let's talk about the stack this week. Dan, what was in the stack and why did you pick these books for the stack this week? So we're reading Fantastic Four, number 52, with a little bit of me sort of wandering on into 53 afterwards, just because I couldn't help myself. Jungle Action, number six. And then Black Panther, volume three. Technically number one through 12, but really with a focus on nine through nine through 12. I don't know. Did you read much of the first eight? I read the entire 12 books. Yes. And you have no questions whatsoever on anything that happened. There is <laughs> lots of questions. <laughs> there is so much going on in these books and it is, I, I don't want to jump ahead because there is, there really is uh, a lot to go there's through a, there. A lot there. So fantastic four, number 52. First appearance of the Black Panther. Uh, jungle Action number six, first appearance of Killmonger. Yeah, so these Jungle Action books, I knew I wanted to have at least a little bit of a look at those because they were really a defining time for Black Panther back in the 70s. You've got Don McGregor on scripts doing some really cool stuff. And then, especially later on in the run, starting with number 10, a little later than one we're doing, you have Billy Graham come in, who is the first black artist to actually work on Black Panther. And he and McGregor, they lived together, they were friends, did some spectacular work on this comic book and really sort of set a lot of the tone for Black Panther going forward in those. Then with Black Panther Volume 3, really it's just the fact that a lot of the characters and a lot of the ideas that went into the actual movie, I think you see them first coming in here in Volume 3. If you wanted to look at just one set of books that sort of gives you an idea of what the themes of the movie were and who some of the players are, this would be it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a great series of books to read as like a screenplay, because it's very different. But there are a lot it's... of concepts in here that do sort yeah. of lead that direction. For our creator profile, you, you wanted to highlight the writer of the Black Panther Volume 3, Christopher Priest. Yeah. You know, this is a guy, he's been around the comics world for a long time. Um, 
and his history, his history in the in the industry is kind of actually a bit of an adventure to track. His given name was Jim Owlsley, and that's actually the name he used when he started out working in comics back at Marvel way in the early 80s as an editor and a writer. First book I remember reading by him was actually the four-issue Falcon miniseries that he worked on with Paul Smith back in like 1983-84. Paul Smith, one of my favorite artists, just an absolutely immaculate uh, sort of artist of clean lines and just beautiful, beautiful pages. But I really enjoyed this Falcon story simply for the fact that it was kind of a little bit edgy, a little bit different at the time. And so I started kind of following Owlsley where I could find him. And for the longest time, pre-internet, I wondered where he went to, because at a certain point he just disappeared. Disappeared, right? yeah. Um, but he did work with, after Finished Falcon, he did some Power Man and Iron Fist titles, uh, some others. 1993, he actually changed his name right around that time to Christopher Priest, and he was part of the creation of Milestone, which is a company that was affiliated with DC and that showcased black creators and black characters. Uh, while he was there, he actually helped to co-create a character called Static, also sometimes called Static Shock, who's had a kind of a life in animated cartoons and has been uh, a few different incarnations, uh, eventually just in the DC Comics main universe. He ended up working in management there at Wildstorm uh, as well. But by the 90s, he'd returned back to Marvel, or late 90s, he'd returned back to Marvel, changed his name again to Christopher Priest, and that's what he continued to work as even when he came back to Marvel. Uh, in many comics, he's in fact credited simply as Priest. Uh, and indeed, it's interesting because changed his name. He also is a Baptist minister. There also are some statements that said that... Um, he changed his name because at one point he said that uh, if he ever, you know, if his marriage ever failed, he was going to become a priest. And he sort of got around that by just changing his name to priest instead of actually going into the priesthood um, after after his, his marriage did actually end in divorce. But in any case, uh, priests in his comics are fascinating because they're the sort of middle ground, sort of in terms of content and chronology, between decades of sort of these white writers who are voicing the Falcon and Black Panther and some of these other black characters from Marvel uh, during the Bronze Age and, and the Silver Age. And then you've got in more recent times people like Reginald Hutland and guys who would come in and have a more sort of strongly black sort of facing voice. And... It's interesting because Priest actually, he wrote Black Panther in the, in the late 90s with kind of this awareness and sympathy towards black issues, but he was also somebody who'd been working in white comics for a long time and he was careful not to rock the boat too much. So as such as Panther stories are in some ways kind of designed to be progressive, but also accessible to white audiences, which interestingly may be one reason why they'd have been a, a reasonable place to start as an adaptation plan for uh, for the Black Panther movie because it's kind of exactly what they were looking for was something that was, you know, aimed towards being something that would really be exciting to black audiences but could still also bring in white crowds as well to supplement those box office dollars. And that's what they were able to do. 
So really an interesting guy. Uh, he's on the convention circuit every once in a while, and is I've I've wandered by him a couple times and, and visited with him. Nice dude. Um, but yeah, Christopher Priest, very interesting part of comic book history, and I've always enjoyed his stories. All right, we're going to get to his stories here in a little bit, but let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about Fantastic Four number 52. And I have to tell you, not knowing any history of Black Panther and then jumping in and realizing this is the very first appearance of the Black Panther, this was a decidedly different first appearance than I was expecting. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It really is. So this is, of course, you know, since we're going back to the beginning, it's Stan Lee, it's Jack Kirby, it's Joe Sinna inking, you've got Sam Rosen on letters. It's a lot of your classic early Marvel uh, cast of characters. Um, FF52 actually starts out with the Fantastic Four sort of zooming around New York in this fancy new car, sort of air car that they've got. And we find out relatively soon that it's been given to them by the Black Panther. Reed doesn't know who this guy is, but evidently somebody just sends him this vehicle that launches people into the air, and he's like, hey, I trust this guy. Let's go flying and take my family in this untested car from somebody I don't know, right? Um, But the Panther then, besides giving them the car, he invites the Fantastic Four to his kingdom of Wakanda, where he says that he wants to bring them in as guests, and then he will arrange this great hunt. Uh, The team then decides to take off in their snazzy new ship, along with Human Torch's friend, Wyatt Wingfoot. Looks like he's probably his college roommate. I think that was was where we first met Wyatt. When they get to Wakanda, the panther immediately attacks them, and we find out that when he said he was inviting them to a hunt, he meant that they were going to be the ones being hunted, which was not exactly what I think Reed had planned. He then goes through and sort of individually defeats each of the Fantastic Four separately and is foiled only when the one unplanned for part of the uh, the whole event, Wyatt Wingfoot, manages to, in all of his humanness, sneak in and, like, bean the guy who's running some key machinery and saves the day by freeing some of the Fantastic Four. Black Panther takes this extremely well, though, says, I was just kidding, I wasn't going to hurt you. I just wanted to prove to myself and the world that I could defeat the Fantastic Four because that would let me know that I am ready to fight my actual foe. So he throws a big party in celebration of the Four, um, and the person we wanted to test himself against was them because as he tells them that backstory, it goes into how his father was killed by a vibranium thief named Claw, and before the end of the meal, Claw then attacks, sending sonic creatures against Wakanda, and the FF needed to fight them off, while Black Panther takes off and fights and dispatches Claw himself. So after avenging his father, Black Panther then comes back, visits with the Fantastic Four, dedicates himself to heroism, and helping the Fantastic Four and the world, and we uh, we end on a happy note. So... Some of that goes well into 53, by the way. But, yes. nonetheless. Like I said, just a very surprising introduction. I was not expecting the very first appearance was going to be uh, 
the Black Panther attacking the Fantastic Four. And it and it was but it, what was interesting is like it showed off just how advanced their civilization was. He had this state of the art like car plane thing that they were able to create. They talked about the vibranium and all this sort of thing. And he said that he had basically studied each of the members of the Fantastic Four. And he had all these gadgets and all this sort of thing. And he, he had like this tank thing that he put Johnny Storm in that wouldn't allow him to turn into the torch. And he had this like serum thing that he put on the thing and it like zapped him of all his power. So he like knew the Fantastic Four and basically neutralized them in pretty short order without that much help at all. And and like, it, it is really funny to me that, you know, we talk about these books and and like, you know, kids reading them and that sort of thing. And it is the person without superpowers, the roommate, Wyatt Wingfoot, basically saves the day because he knocks out the people. He he actually frees Johnny Storm from the, the tank thing that he's in. And then Johnny's able to help save the other people on the team and then they just you know are able to basically surround and confront uh the the black panther and then he's like okay okay i give here here, here's what's really going on yep yeah i was it was really interesting and i mean that's they always love to have that confrontation there's got to be a fight and so in this case when it was really mostly just about introducing him to a new place and a new character they found a way to make the, you know, the heroes fight each other so that they could still get their action in. And it, uh, it worked out pretty well. So, so there were a few things about this, though, that I think are important to note. One of them is, when this came out in, like, 1965, there were not really any black characters in mainstream comic books. There certainly weren't any black superheroes. And there's a couple of things that show how Stan and Jack were committed to bringing in a new black character. They'd actually um, been planning this for a while. And they'd had other sort of aborted attempts and things like that. Do you know what the first title, the first name of the Black Panther was before they, before they completed it? He was, going, he, was going, he was going to be the Coal Tiger. Thank heavens they they came up with the better name, but he's a uh, he is now. It's much better. But um, but they had to figure out a way to work him in. One of the things that's interesting is he has the fully, like covering cat suit, like the his suit covers him, literally head to toe. Right, he doesn't even have the face cut out. There evidently were two covers of the original Fantastic Four number fifty two, and one of them had the Black Panther with his mask that we know now, and another had him, evidently the the way they were originally planning on doing it, he would have had almost like a Batman type of face cutout where you'd have been able to see he was black. Sure. And evidently they did decide that they couldn't do that because at that point, even just having the ability for someone to see on the front cover that one of the heroes was black would have potentially made it so that book couldn't have been sold in some parts of like the American South. Oh my. And so because of that, that is one of the reasons why he has a full face mask. 
is that until you get into the book and start reading it, you don't actually know that there's a, a an, Af- an African character, a black character in the book. And that evidently huh. was something that they did to kind of get around things. Um, also, it's interesting that they decided it was safest to have their hero be not American. And that was the other weird thing is if you did have either heroes or villains that were black in the comics at that point, um, or really minorities of almost any sort, a lot of times they weren't American. They would be foreign. So they'd be like a French black character or something like that rather than being American. So that was another point of distance that they kind of went through to try and keep themselves from getting in too much trouble as they started broadening the the diversity of the the universe. And it's unfortunate, but I suspect probably as a couple of Jewish kids, they knew how some of this stuff could go, and they just wanted to try and get the universe expanded while causing themselves as few headaches as possible. So they were being careful about it. Makes sense. Unfortunately, it makes sense. Tragically, but yes, that uh, those were the times. Speaking of which, Ben Grimm, he's a piece of work in these. So he he is a uh, he is yeah. really terrible. Actually, he's kind of like the uh, the every the uh, I don't know the American everyman, somebody who is is really kind of unlearned and. Uh, is is very how would how would I even put this? Ben in these stories basically says that the only thing he knows about Africa comes from, you know, jungle story books and things like this. And he is un unevolved in more ways than normal in, in these books, which is kind of interesting. But so they did put in some different sort of racist opinions and the like as well to play off of, to show some of the different, you know, things they were, they were reacting against. So there's actually a lot in these books, more than you would figure again for something for kids. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. So I've been playing Marvel snap and there are a bunch of like cards of characters that I have never been introduced to. And I actually got to see a few of them in these books, which I thought was kind of interesting. I, so Maximus is in this, and I did not know that that Maximus is is Black Bolt's brother, who's yep. apparently power crazed, mad, and that we had Medusa is in here, who is in love with Black Bolt. Uh, it seems, in at least at this point, we had Crystal is in this book as well. She seems to be infatuated with Johnny Storm. I love how these female superheroes seem to be their their biggest claim to fame is who they're interested in romantically in the in in the in these books which is not a great look either but i guess well black, black was... Bolt and medusa have been married forever okay so they are okay. they're essentially the that. king and queen of uh they are the king and queen of atalon or the or the um kind of the whole shebang there of the inhumans so okay now she is also his cousin so I mean, there's there's that, but nonetheless, we just okay. I didn't gotta take know that either. Sweep, so sweep that under weird. the rug. Sweep that under the rug. And yeah, Crystal and Johnny Storm have been an item for a long time as well. That is okay. Yep. The, and then and then there's Gorgon and Karnak, who I had never seen before, and they they were 
in like a page worth of panels, there was some incident where they were trying to figure out how to get out of the negative zone or get into the negative zone and in, in, in this story as well. So it was just, it was just yeah. interesting. There was like, here's some Marvel characters I really haven't been exposed to in any of the readings that we've had so far. And here just happenstance popped into this Fantastic Four story and there they are. Yep. Well, and they are big in the Fantastic Four for a long time. They're okay. actually, we see a lot of them because the FF has a lot of these, have a lot of these uh, cosmic adventures. And so for a long time, Crystal even sort of is with the team, almost like another member of the Fantastic Four and the like. Sure. Should we move on to jungle action number six? You know, before we, before we move off this, one other thing I just want to note is that I think it's impressive yet again how complete the origin of this character is from the very first appearance. You know, when it yeah. comes right down to it, you have you have this guy who's the the king of a technologically advanced African nation whose father is murdered by somebody named Claw and he then needs to take vengeance upon him and there's vibranium and basically all of the pieces for 50 years of yeah. Black Panther comics and two movies are laid out in this one comic book. And it just astonishes me how these guys kept doing this in the early and mid-60s. Essentially, Lee and Kirby would create an entire world every month. Yeah, you you have... You're exactly right. If there are all the... All the the big points that that you have for the black panther really are just right here and it's just been kind of ex expanding expounding giving more clarity on that ever since all right so with that you ready to move on we're going to take a 10-year sort of hop into the future and check out something else all right let's look at jungle action number six and the first appearance of arguably, I think, one of the biggest sort of adversaries to the Black Panther and Killmonger. And he was every bit as awesome, I guess, would be the word I would describe him as. Uh, every bit as formidable as I expected him to be. And it, again, just like with... Uh, the Fantastic Four introduction of Black Panther. I think they did a really good job of introducing a, a new a new character in the in the Black Panther universe. Yep. Yep. So this is a book from 1975, I think. 75, 76. Written by Don McGregor, penciled by Rich Buckler, inked by Klaus Jensen, Glynis Wynn was on colors, Tom Murachowski on letters, and it was edited by Roy Thomas. There are so many true professionals with a capital P working on this book. You have no idea how many comics were colored by Glennis Wynn or lettered by Tom Wojcicki, inked by Klaus Jensen. Now these the supporting cast that McGregor and Book and and Buckler had behind them was absolutely impeccable. But then the work they did as well. McGregor's on record on these books talking about how he was really dissatisfied with what Marvel was doing with its jungle action comic books in the early 70s. 
And so this is Jungle Action Volume 2. The original was essentially just reprints they did every month. And the reprints were of comics from like the 50s and early 60s. Um, and they were really inappropriate for the times. And he's like, you've got to be able to do better than this. I'm like, well, fine, you do better then. And so he was basically a copy boy at this time, and they gave him his chance. And he's like, yeah, it's, you know, bi-monthly. It's on a, a book that nobody currently reads. I'm set up to fail. He's like, screw it. I'm going to just do what I want to do. So he set up this long-form story where he decides he's going to really tell a Black Panther story the way he wants to. And Rich Buckler comes on. Buckler loves working with McGregor. He's got a lot of respect for him. Buckler's done a ton of stuff. He's one of my favorite artists of the 70s and, and 80s. Really just a very solid um, penciler. And they made something really pretty cool. In this story, Black Panther is returning back to his roots. So in the Jungle Action books, what McGregor decided to do was essentially take Black Panther out of the Avengers and, and the United States and everything else and actually have adventures that focused on Wakanda. And what's interesting about that is Wakanda really didn't exist at that point. McGregor had to build it pretty much from nothing here because there wasn't a whole lot that had been defined. So yeah. as you're looking at these books, you'll see that he's actually going through, and I think the one, either one of the ones we read actually even has like a map of Wakanda in it. I was going to note that there is, uh, on the last page of book six, there is, and it's an entire page and there's two panels, and the two panels are maps. One is the land of Wakanda, and it shows where everything are, fields, central Wakanda, all this yep. sort of stuff, where the big, the, the great mound is, everything. And then there's a secondary one, the central Wakanda, that talks specifically about kind of the the main portion where the palace is and everything like that, which is, I thought was really cool and yep. something very unexpected to see in this. Yeah, and that's really just the fact that he's trying to flesh out for himself as well as for everybody else, what's actually in this country? You know, what are the places they can go for adventures and stuff like that? And then he starts taking you there. So by issue number six, he's got a lot of this stuff underway. Black Panther has returned home after a long time away. He's in the middle of a bunch of sort of political debates and infighting. And he finds that there are a lot of problems that have arisen in Wakanda while he's away. Uh, one of his people is is trapped actually while he's wandering out um, in the in or coming back. He sees that he's trapped in kind of this cage and being tortured. He frees the man by defeating those captors, um, and when he does, the guy he tries to save save dies. But as he's dying, he tells him that there's someone called Killmonger who's behind the attack. T'Challa then continues his way into the city. He meets with his friends and advisors are also angry at him for leaving for so long and this leads to the black panther heading out to find his adversary so he goes to the warrior falls he finds killmonger and fights him along with having to fight against killmonger's cheetah named prey with two y's p-r-e-y-y prey so um which is ridiculous but prey uh -huh. and the panther actually get into this sort of tight grip uh it looks like they're both going to go over the falls Killmonger pulls back his cheetah just as 
T'Challa goes over the falls. Panther then floats downstream in issue number seven and is saved by his visiting lady friend. Um, we've seen her before and we'll see her again. And then he tells the story of how he and Eric Killmonger, who previously had been named N'Jadaka, uh, have met. N'Jadaka was actually a Wakandan who was living in America now, or previously, because he'd been kidnapped by Claw during his initial invasion, been forced in to help him dig vibranium and the like, eventually had escaped, escaped off a ship near America where he stayed for a while. When he saw T'Challa was in America, he contacted him. T'Challa actually brought him back to Wakanda with him on one of his trips, essentially re-importing someone who now has a bunch of ideas and the like that he decides he wants to implement in Wakanda and starts a rebellion against him. So, there's a, there's a little bit of jungle action. So, what did you think of this book? Uh, it was, it was, int it was really, really good, actually. I, w I was surprised at how much I liked this story. There was something about the, the Killmonger character when you start, when they first start talking about him, he kind of has, to me at least, this kind of old school Western vibe to him. You know, don't you 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 only talk about him in hushed tones. You never say mm -hmm. his name out loud. He could be around any corner, and 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 you you don't want to fight this guy. He 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 is, uh, you know, he's scary. He you know you 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 just don't know what you're in for. And then when he finally shows up, because he doesn't show up until about three quarters of the way through book six he just appears in this full page panel and he is like using this like belt type whip thing and is mm -hmm. trying to hit hit uh the black panther with it and i tell you what that picture right there of him the very first appearance he sort of reminded me of what a a lot of the wrestlers that i remember seeing from back in the 70s yep. he, he no he had pants on, no shirt, just ripped like you would not believe. And, you know, using belts and weird things to, like, try and hit and attack people. It just, it was, it was a little corny, but at the same time, it was really, really cool. And I thought a great way to introduce a, a an adversary for the Black Panther. There are a few characters who get as good of a first, like, you know, impression as Killmonger gets in terms of Buckler does a great job. He gets a full page. It's not like one panel he gets introduced on. He gets a full page, and yep. it is, it's a very impressive sort of introductory panel or, or page. So I, I also think it's interesting that as we move along, you'll see that Killmonger, his story kind of merges into other stories and the like, but it always has this idea of him being a character who's torn between two worlds, just like T'Challa is, only it's kind of backwards, where he's spent more time in the United States, and so he's more of an, somebody who comes at things with an, a largely American way of looking at it. I don't know how old he was when he was kidnapped, but he must not have spent a ton of time. He must have been young when, when he was taken out of Wakanda. Spent a lot of time in America and then comes back 
Well, of course, T'Challa spent most of his time in Wakanda, but has been in America for a while. And they both kind of have those competing ideas, which is why they end up being such good foes, is they are yeah. sort of weird mirror images of each other. Yeah, they will, they see this the same situation and come about it in two completely different ways and and see their way as being the best and only way to really handle the situation. Other than that, I mean, I, I think that one of the things I've always found interesting, Don McGregor is a, a very white looking dude. He kind of he kind of looks like somebody who could have been a member of the Grateful Dead or something along those lines, pretty much. Okay. But but he is actually really well respected by a lot of black creators and fans from the 70s and and that came afterwards um these books actually while, while they're still have that problem of being black panther being written by a white guy are far more respected by a lot of the black creators who came afterwards than i think i would have previously expected before i started researching it Part of that is that the very fact that these are called jungle action, you would never, ever see a comic book named that in the 21st century, right? So there is a, there's just a old racist tropes element about this whole series that you just expect you're going to cringe the entire time through. But in actual fact, they're pretty progressive and interesting stories that really do set a lot of uh, a lot of sort of the tone for Black Panther going forward, so it's actually well worth taking a look at. Yeah, especially when when you get around issue number ten or so, when Billy Graham takes over on art because he is just absolutely fantastic. I mean that artwork is so fluid and expressive and and just wild that it is well worth the price of admission just just to see those pages. So, check it out. Very cool. Any other comments about Jungle Action number six, or should we move on to Black Panther volume three? Just to show one more thing about how far Marvel and, and comics were from the mainstream in some ways, one of McGregor's other claims to fame is that he and P. Craig Russell, another artist I really like, actually had the first interracial romantic kiss in mainstream comics in a 1975 Kill Raven story, which I believe puts it almost a decade behind like Kirk and, and Ohiro and, and things like this. So comics are resolutely conservative at this time. And uh, it took them a long time to, to do anything even remotely courageous or, or different. All right, let's move on to Black Panther Volume 3. We're jumping all the way forward to the late 90s, 1998, 1999, when the when the series started. And this is written by Christopher Priest, who our, who our creator profile was about. Absolutely, yep. So, looked at, read 12 issues, really going to talk about the last four in depth. Uh, Christopher Priest wrote them. Had a number of artists, Mark Teixeira, Mike Manley, Mark Bright uh, on the pencils. Uh, inks as well, moved around, a lot of them inked themselves. A lot of it was colored by Brian Haberlin, lettered by Richard Starkings or Siobhan Hanna. And Jimmy Casada and, or, or Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmati were the editors. And actually they weren't just the editors, 
they were essentially subcontracted to make these books. And we'll talk about that in a little while. So, in essence, though, the first eight books of this run are just absolutely nuts. Yeah. Writing up writing up a summary of these had me pulling my hair out, to be quite frank. Because Wakanda's at war with itself. Mephisto somehow appears like at the end of the first issue and then waits around almost like just hanging out with Everett C. Ross waiting for Black Panther to get back. Black Panther himself is guarded by some teenage wives in training that theoretically he... They're almost like concubines, but he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, it's kind of a little bit awkward. Uh, all of this is wrapped up in a gang war that's going on that's part of international intrigue. It's all told through this unreliable narration of C. Everett Ross, or of Everett K. Ross, who's constantly worried for the first two or three issues about the fact he doesn't have his pants. This is something that I, I have a tough time actually even explaining. You just have to read these for yourself, people. If if you want to know what's it going is, on, it is a, an absolute trip. And just when you think it is, it's going to start to kind of normalize a little bit, then something else absolutely crazy goes off the and you just go right back off the rails. And it's all told out of order because it's told yes by by Ross relaying this to. His boss, who also is his girlfriend, evidently. Yes. And yes. so... He, he, he is talking to his boss, Nikki, who's, who is his boss, and also kind of they're intimate together, because at one point he's trying to seduce her by playing a banjo naked on his bed. And it's... And it, like you and do. And he just... Yes, like you do. And he just... <laughs> like, every couple of pages he says okay i'm getting ahead of myself and she's like screaming at him to like this doesn't make any sense why is this happening why are you telling me this where is the context back up tell me what is going on and you know you have this situation with the president as well he's he has a, apparently he's telling the president what's going on because mm -hmm. eventually uh you know t'challa goes up in front of the UN and tells them get your house in order which which actually starts kind of that final enemy of the state run that we're going to look at specifically yep. but yeah Ross is he doesn't refer to to the Black Panther T'Challa as either of those it is always the client the client and and it is it is it is so weird. It is so weird, and there are so many characters too. He, yes, there is there is a a scene. He is coming from Wakanda to New York to try and figure out what's going on with this like poster child who ends up getting murdered, and like he brings like half the Wakandan embassy with him, and there's a. There's a panel where basically they get off the plane and, and Ross is like, I was going to, you know, pick him up and bring him to, to a hotel. And there's like 150 people that he's brought with him. That, he's got that like they, a Miata or something that he brought. <laughs> yes. And, and Ross yes. has a Miata to try to try and pick up 150 people with it. Yeah. It's just, it is absolutely crazy. But at the same time, it is, 
it is really interesting and just yeah. it it keeps you on your toes. Yeah, there's a lot going on, and there's a reason why priest books are always fun. You know, they are wildly inventive, and the dialogue is cool, and they're they're really irreverent. There's kind of a lot of humor to it. It's got a that you know Demadius Giffen Justice League sort of feel to it. But you never mind. You've never read Demadius I, I Giffen Justice League. I have no idea what that is. But somebody out there knows your, what I'm talking about. Yeah. To your, to your point, Ross being pantsless and sitting basically in a room with Mephisto, and and yep. just they're just hanging out, talking to each other a little bit. It is just like, oh my gosh, just sort of yep. crazy. Yeah, Mephisto gives him pants just to be nice, and I I do feel that Nikki. There are times she is a stand-in for the reader, where we're just like, for God's sake, just try and tell me this story straight because I yes. am so confused right now. So, but we get through all that, and one of the things is that all of those storylines, all of those intrigues from Wakanda and New York, and the the dead little girl, and all of the various characters kind of starts coming together in issues 9 through 12 because what we find out is that this has been this intrigue that's been going on and building over a long time. So starting in issue number 9, we have this tidy four-issue arc called Enemy of the State that pretty much wraps up all of the craziness we've been looking at for the last eight issues. In these books, T'Challa begins to resolve the various diplomatic and espionage plots that were set up in those eight issues, by demanding the world's nations rein in the factions and agents that have been working towards a coup d'etat in Wakanda. There's a character called Akebi, who betrays T'Challa's stepmother-in-law, Ramonda. The two of them have been sort of sharing control of Wakanda in T'Challa's absence. And he knocks her out and then takes control of this massive Voltron-like Wakandan lion robot that's called a Prowler and starts to attack the, the Wakandans to take control. At that same time, back in New York, the Panther meets up with the White Wolf and his Hatut Zaraze team uh, as T'Challa tries to avoid being assassinated. So they help him get away from the assassination, and all of our protagonists, basically everyone, makes their way towards the river and all comes to the Hudson at the same time, where they hop into this massive sub-slash- plane that has evidently been hiding under the Hudson River, pops up in the air, everyone jumps in uh -huh. and flies away to Wakanda. So, the Panther then starts dealing with his foes, either directly or indirectly, starting with whom, or many of whom have been working against him for years, starting actually with the White Wolf, who's the leader of this group, the, the Hatut Zaraze, who are essentially his father's sort of personal guard. They're very dedicated to Wakanda, but their methods are extremely direct and murderous. And because of that, T'Challa's never felt comfortable with them, and so he told the White Wolf he was not interested in his help. I will note that if you, if you look at the White Wolf story, though, over this, more than a little of the Killmonger story in the Black Panther movie is a combination of Eric Killmonger and the White Wolf. Because the White Wolf no. actually is a white kid who is brought to Wakanda as a baby. Very Loki-ish, actually. 
raised by the king as his own son. And so essentially as he's being raised, um, T'Challa has a white half or white um, stepbrother, foster brother, something along these lines. The white wolf then is, he gets a costume, a white Black Panther costume essentially, and calls himself the white wolf. And he is very, very dedicated to T'Challa's uh, father. When he dies, though, he becomes very angry. And the two of them have a break. And then at that point, he becomes sort of a danger. Yeah, T'Challa, like, disbanded. Disbanded that, that his group. group. Yeah, right. Uh, after after his father T'Chaka dies, he, he he's never agreed with the, the, the methods in which nope. the, the uh, Hattusur... Sarase uh, went about their business and so was was like yeah. we yeah we we don't I don't want you around here and so you yeah. basically disbanded they didn't the disband movie. very well though they just sort of evidently all left to continue doing their things elsewhere so right. but as they come back he knocks out the wolf and his crew and sort of uh, ties them up everybody returns to Wakanda Akebi threatens to blow up everything with this really big pile of CFC4 at the end of issue 11. And then when we start number 12, Cap is arriving to help out. And as he storms into the building in Wakanda where, where uh, the Black Panther had gone, what they find is that Ross and T'Challa somehow are stuck in this huge carnival machine slash death trap. Black Panther is naked. Because the bad guy has stolen his costume and is now impersonating him. Yep. Ross is really uncomfortable about the fact that he's in this weird suit and the Black Panther's there naked it's, next to him. But they have to get yeah, into one of the carnival balls and then they somehow push it down until it pops out through like the gumball machine door thing. I don't know exactly what happens. It's uncomfortable to think about. I'm just going to say this is another of those you may just need to read for yourself. But eventually they get out. Um, the good guys win because at that point, once he's out and um, and Akabe has been captured, the White Wolf does get out again and he's got to beat him down once more. But everything kind of settles down. Ramonda is actually all right. He thought for a while she might be dead. And she had been working with him all along because T'Challa had known that all these factions both in other countries and internally, had been trying to overthrow him to get at the vibranium piles. And so he'd been working this long game with his stepmother, finding a way to sort of bring all of these people out where he could see that they were betraying them and then deal with them all at one fell swoop. Uh, so he does that. Wakanda settles back into its normal ways, the panther in charge, and everything's good, at least for an issue or so. Ross ends up in Iceland momentarily, but then uh, T'Challa comes with with the uh, with the ship and says, "Hey, you wanna you wanna come to Wakanda?" and and mm -hmm. he says, "Sure," because otherwise he's gonna be telling stories to penguins. All right, Dwayne. So, tell me what you think of these, uh, especially as these last four books. <laughs> So th there is this is this was a, actually a really interesting story, but it was told in a very confusing way. Just the fact that we had 
all of the the entire story was basically learning about it secondhand through Everett Ross, who apparently has ADHD or something because he just cannot keep a straight through line on anything and is all over the place. And I cannot even begin to tell you just how fantastic some of these things are when you when you're actually reading them on the page, because if you were to tell me that in 12 issues, you're going to have the Black Panther go to hell with Mephisto, get captured by Craven the Hunter, dealing with the White Wolf, who is a sort of half brother. He saves his ex from death, who has this like mechanical exosuit on. Uh, has a run in with the event- Yeah, while she's trying to kill him, has a run in with the Avengers. Says that basically he joined the Avengers just to spy on them, and then ends up trying to defeat the guy who's trying to take over Wakanda while he's away. Oh, and he has to save his stepmom, who who is working as a double agent for him while all of this is going on. It is just absolute chaos, but there is. There is, it, it, it just, it, it, and it moves at a frenetic pace too. And and the thing that I guess I didn't like about the storytelling for this, I mean, besides it just being confusing, is that it did seem like there were points where some additional context was available, but you had to have read outside of the Black Panther books. Like, there was a reference to Captain Cap. There was a couple references to Captain America in a couple of these books. Uh, you know why he was in Wakanda for in issue twelve. There was a a, a spot earlier where where it was like, oh, Captain America shows up. Well, here's why he was sho- why he showed up. But it always like. Like you talked about issue twelve, and then just sort of suddenly Cap is there, and there's this giant gumball machine thing, and T'Challa is naked, and Ross is in this like vibranium suit, and you're just like, I have no idea how we got here from the end of book eleven, and there has to be some explanation, but at the same time, that's how this entire story has gone, so it doesn't. I mean. It probably there there might not be any additional context, and I there, just there can't is not tell. any additional context that I know of. There's nothing there's nothing I see that talks about because it's really between eleven and twelve that yeah a bunch of stuff That's happens that makes one, no sense. Yeah. I don't see any. There's no other book like where it's a crossover with Captain America or anything like that. So no, he just decided <laughs> okay he he was that uh, he he wanted to. Uh, Start us out with a gumball machine. So, sure. yeah. No, it was it was entertaining. I think looking at this to me, what I found really interesting, though, is the number of concepts and ideas that came over. You know, the, the importance of the Dora Milaje, they were introduced here. Now, obviously, they're changed from being just these two young women to being that entire guard. Essentially, really, they take the Hatut Zaraze and replace them with the Dora Milaje in the movie. Right in the yeah. MCU, this this uh, essentially um, royal guard is is replaced there. But they they came in first here, like Christopher Priest, 
created them for this book. Edward Ross, or Everett Ross, was not really somebody anywhere else. He's This is his start being kind of a part of this mythology. Um, I think that the idea of his mother as sort of that that influence and, and queen sort of at the top of the uh, the ruling structure with him really starts here. So a lot of a lot of what you'd see for that. And then the white wolf and some of that combat they have, and just that idea that there's that that fight for the soul of Wakanda. There's a lot of the base plot and characters of this movie that come out of these stories. I I I think we're going to find the movie may have done it better because <laughs> I I like these. But yeah, there there there's a bit of craziness here that I I think uh is better explained or better laid out uh maybe in the in the books. So you talked about uh the editors for this, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmietti. How did how yeah. what what is what is the, the story with them? So what happened there is this book and a number of books that came out around this time at Marvel are actually under something called the Marvel Knights line. And what that was essentially was a, a an attempt by Marvel to have a new imprint that was designed for a slightly older reader group. So you had right. regular Marvel comics that were intended for like younger teens. You had Marvel Knights, which would maybe be for older teens. And then you had the Max line, which would have been your quote-unquote mature titles, which are for 15-year-olds who want to feel like they're grown-ups. <laughs> right? Sure, sure. Of so course. essentially the the Marvel Knights line was a really successful and very cool idea for a long time. We've read a number of these because Moon Knight was actually part of the Marvel Knights. And in fact, Daredevil had a group called the Marvel Knights that Moon Knight was one of the members of, but there also were a number of other books. And the way that they managed this was that rather than publish these or or create these themselves, Marvel subcontracted out to another company, essentially. A company that was owned by Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmari called Event Comics. And then Event actually went out, hired all the creative teams that were needed, produced the comics and got them ready, and then Marvel published them. So essentially it was almost like a little sub-comics line using Marvel characters to do this slightly different focused set of stories. And they were still in continuity, but they weren't as focused on the continuity of the main MCU. They were kind of off a little bit on their own, doing their own thing. And they were a little bit darker, a little bit edgier, uh, that sort of thing. Or, or in the case of this one, maybe just a little bit weirder. So, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so there was a couple other just small things about about some of the early books that I thought was was interesting. There was a callback in book three. It was a single panel where it talked about the Fantastic Four in that first meeting with the Black Panther and him fighting them 
uh, in there. And, you know, there's this picture of the Black Panther and thing and all of them in there yep. and they're swiping at each other. And I just was like, oh, hey, that's really cool. They they called back way back to that very first first thing, uh, very first appearance, which I just happened to have read earlier in the week. Um, yep. The other interesting thing is the the Nikki character that Everett Ross is seeing apparently has had a relationship with T'Challa before he went back before T'Chaka died and before he became the Black Panther that he is now. And so mm -hmm. she has this sort of uh, interest in T'Challa and and is is very wants to know what's going on and that's further driving kind of her uh kind of exacerbation by ross's inability to tell a coherent story throughout all this which which i thought was really interesting and it just kind of yes it's it's almost the it's a small world sort of thing where where it's like you have these like moments of flashback and you see that these two characters were interacting even though they're not interacting now and it's like, oh, hey, they know each other. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all sorts of all sorts of triangles everywhere. So, but uh, yeah, it's it's a cast of characters which is relatively compact when you really look at it. There's not that many. It's not that many moving parts in the in the Black Panther universe, even even today. We've got a couple of questions for you. So what was your favorite stories of the ones we, we had some good and very different choices here. What, uh, what was yeah. your favorite? I, I mean, I think I have to kind of go with enemy of the state, the, the kind of the last four issues of, of volume three, just because I think that was kind of the focal point of what we were looking at this week. It, it, it kind of pulls in a lot of those elements uh, for the movie that we're going to see next week, there was there was just a lot to it, and and while I think the very first issue, the Fantastic Four issue, did a great job of setting up the Black Panther, and I really liked how they set up Killmonger in Jungle Action. I just there wasn't a lot to that, and and granted, if we would have potentially read some more books further in, maybe we'd have gotten a little bit more, but there was just so much meat on the bone when it came to the enemy of the state story that I, I have to say that was my favorite of the week. Yeah. I kind of set that up and in that there's, there's sure. not really, I, I will say that in terms of having read a bunch more context of all of them, I still love the McGregor and especially the, the McGregor. Um, what's his last name? Billy Graham. Graham. I still love the McGregor Billy Graham stuff. Um, so that that probably is my favorite to these three series. But as we only read like one book, yeah, of the stuff that we had a chance to really dig into, I get where you'd go there. How about favorite art right. or artists? So you you talked about there being some differences in art between the the beginning of Volume Three and the end of Volume Three that we read this week, but the sure. Enemy of the State books looking a little different. I really liked like the early books in volume three specifically. I think about the very first couple pages of book one, where we see Ross mm -hmm. talking to a rat with no pants and, and like 
he is it those pictures they looked like paintings almost to me they looked really really interesting and looked very very different than anything i expected to see and and there was just it, it flowed really well and then you had mephisto in there and just some of the some of the kind of craziness lent itself to some really kind of dramatic imagery across yep. across those early books and, and you know what actually is really interesting too is we get to book eight and you have this avengers the avengers incident they called it and for the first six pages of book eight it is drawn old school like 1950s 1960s art yep. for the first six pages of that book where all of a sudden Baron Zemo shows up and, and all this sort of thing. And, and like, I am not a huge fan of necessarily that art style, but it was something when it was juxtaposed with this more modern look of the, the late nineties. And, and it just, it, it surprised me how much I enjoyed those six pages of having this just throwback to old school, art in there and then all of a sudden it just switched back because they got went back to kind of current situation here's what's going on at the at the building and everything and i just i really liked liked the art throughout but i just distinctly remember the beginning of of volume three and then that near the middle of volume three that i really really liked and, and wanted to call out absolutely and that uh that six page or five page um insert that was by amanda connor who is one of my favorite artists there's some of her earlier stuff uh so it's not really work that would be what you'd necessarily recognize now as amanda connor art but uh always great to see art by amanda connor i would agree with you by the way my favorite art of the week is that early um mark dixera stuff he's He's interesting to me because I love the fact that he's actually got a path almost like Bill Sienkiewicz in that he started out as a Neil Adams clone. And the first few years, it was very obvious that he was kind of derivative of and he was learning off other artists and stuff. And he just kind of developed his own style and became really an interesting artist. He's still got some of those influences, you can see, but he's right. very much his own artist. And so... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tixera. We've read some other Tixera books before yep. as well. I remember... I, I, some Moon Knight. He did some Moon Knight stuff, yeah. Yep. And so so I, I, I think I remember liking the art in, in those books as well. And so it, it really... It doesn't surprise me that, 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 that his art spoke to me again this week. No, not at all. That makes perfect sense. So... Um, how about worst part? What was the thing that if, if anything you wished we'd skipped this week? What, no, uh, I mean, not, not skip. It's just the worst part was that trying to keep track of everything that was going on during volume three, because it just, it was told out of order. It felt like there was stuff going on that I didn't understand what was going on or why it was going on. And as you pointed out, I think, I think, Nikki being kind of the surrogate for the reader, being like, stop, please, 
tell a coherent story, Ross. I don't get what you're saying. This doesn't yep. make any sense. Um, but at the same that time, the it goes. But I was going to say, but at the same time, it's one of those things where it's like, if every story was told the same way every time, it might get a little old. And, and even if it is a, a new and different story. And so having these situations from time to time where you're thrown out of your comfort zone by having a story told in a rather weird and sort of kind of chaotic way, um, maybe that added to kind of some of the interest and intrigue that, that occurred throughout these books. I would 100% agree with that. All right, that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. Uh, we wanted to take a minute and note and apologize for a little bit of a late publish for last week's episode. Dan? That was entirely... Sort of... So I finished editing it, <laughs> and then I thought that I'd had everything done because I'd, uh, I'd gotten it all done and it was published. And then come around Friday, we got some questions of why the episode wasn't out or where it was and it was sitting on my hard drive completely finished for three days unpublished so my apologies everyone i guess two days when yeah, yeah. two days when's well, wednesday or friday yeah. but so hope, hopefully you did see it and and got to listen to it i think there was a lot of interesting discussion about uh the thor ragnarok movie and so uh, we're planning on publishing this at, the, at its regular bat time and bat channel. So there yes. shouldn't, be, shouldn't be any details with that. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. So outside of that, sir, um, we are going to look ahead a little bit, let you know what's coming up uh, next week. I'm sure you will be coming up with all sorts of interesting movie tidbits for us because we're going to be looking at Black Panther from 2018, Ryan Coogler's comic book uh, superhero masterpiece. Made tons of money, won lots of accolades. Um, one of the high points for Marvel Studios in the last decade. And may have completely just launched Chadwick Boseman into the stratosphere. I mean, he, I think he was really really quite a quite an actor going into this film but i th i think he reached a whole nother level after after this film and yeah and i think he also i mean he'd already been jackie robinson and 42 and the like so you know he he had from a from a standpoint I, he, of people who were in the industry knowing how great he was but this yes. was the breakthrough role where everybody realized how great yes. he was Yes, I, that that's I guess where I was going from. He he, um, whole nother level, and I th I think it's going to be really something watching this movie now, given everything that has happened uh, since since this movie came out. And I remember really enjoying this film the first time, and and I can't imagine that it is going to be anything better than uh, a hit this time around as well. No. All right. And with that, that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the 
beginning. We'd love to get your thoughts on the show, or if you read some of the Black Panther stories we talked about this week, please send us your thoughts. You can send them to us via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com, or you can reach out to us via social media on X. That address is at comicsovertime over there. (laughs) Dan... I really enjoyed these Black Panther books that we got to read this week, and I think the additional context that I now have for these characters is going to be very useful as we rewatch the Black Panther movie this week. Yep, absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun. And next week, we get to talk about it. Right. Until then, take care, everybody. Yep. See you next week, folks. <laughs>